Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to our next episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the movie Birdman. I'm Mario Sakura, and I'm here with TJ Jaw and TJ Ingracia. Guys, how you doing? I'm doing okay. TJ, how are you? I'm getting back into the swing of things after a delightful flirtation with COVID. Yes, which has stranded you in Orlando, which is a, a, a fate worse than death, perhaps. But uh, you know. <laughs> well, there's far worse places to be than Orlando. Trust me. <laughs> I don't know. I've been to Orlando a bunch of times, and I can never wait to get out of it. Now Orlando is wonderful. So uh, to, to all my friends there, but TJ, I'm glad you're uh, feeling better. And uh, it's good to have you uh, with us today. So, uh, again, we're going to talk about the movie Birdman today. And TJ Ingracia, you picked this movie. Just to remind listeners of what we're doing here, we're calling this a potpourri season. And we spent the first five episodes or so talking about superhero movies, particularly Marvel superhero movies, which is actually a nice lead-in to this movie. Uh, all things considered, and we'll talk about why. Uh, and now we're just talking about movies that we really, really liked, you know. So we each picked a couple that we're going to talk about. Last time we talked <laughs> about Grease from uh, T.J. Dahl. And uh, this time T.J. Gracia picked Birdman. So, T.J., tell us first why you picked this movie, and then tell us about the movie, please. Give us a summary. Sure. Well, I love this movie. It's probably in my top five all time, I would say. I think it does segue nicely, as you said, from our Marvel series. There's a lot of overlaps and discussion about comic book movies, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into all that. Uh, it's also was filmed in such a way that the entire film, or most of the film, was made to look like it was shot in a single take. And I love single take movies, long long takes. Uh, you know, I'm a freelance video producer professionally, and so I can appreciate the the technical achievement of what it takes to to make that happen, both the you know the choreography, the behind the scenes, and then in the post production, seeming it all together. So uh, you know, I I enjoy watching. I could watch it with the sound off, just looking for okay, they, there's a cut there, and oh, they use that table to change the angle here. So I love geeking out on that kind of stuff. Interesting. It is one of the the things that the movie was famous for, right? When it first came out, it did win the Academy Award for Best Picture and a number of other awards that year, but. Um, it wasn't just a gimmick, right? And so I'm curious, as we talk about the Enneagram themes in the movie, uh, I have some thoughts, and I'm sure you guys do too, on how the decision to film it this way reflects some Enneagram ideas. Okay, so uh, we'll save that. Um, uh, but give us, for those who may not have seen Birdman, or for those like me who had seen it when it first came out, but sort of forgot about it, uh, give us an overview of the film, TJ. Sure. Okay, well, Riggin Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, is a washed-up actor known for playing the superhero Birdman in the 80s and 90s. Some overlaps there with Michael Keaton's career, which you know, we'll talk about. Uh, he's trying to reclaim his former glory and admiration by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway adaptation of Raymond Carver's short story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. 
throughout the film, it's sort of insinuated that Reagan may or may not have supernatural powers. It plays into the, the theme of the movie, but it's left sort of ambiguous whether he does or whether he's just a little bit crazy. Also throughout the film, he's antagonized by this inner voice, this inner critic of the Birdman, who he played in those previous films, who sort of mocks him and tells him that the best way to actually reclaim his former glory is to jump back into the Birdman costume and do Birdman 4. Also part of the play, the production, is Riggins' girlfriend, Laura, Broadway newcomer, Leslie, Riggins' recovering drug addict daughter, Sam, who is his assistant in the film, and uh, his best friend and lawyer, Jake, played by uh, Zach Galifianakis in a great role there. Okay, so during one of the rehearsals, Riggins' co-star is injured on set, leading to Leslie's brilliant but volatile and very self-absorbed method actor boyfriend, Mike, to join the production. Uh, Riggin is initially enthralled with Mike because they have some great chemistry. Mike's doing some great stuff with the script, but he becomes disillusioned pretty quick after Mike's becomes difficult. He breaks character during one of the previews, uh, trashes the set, and uh, kind of ruins the night. And the two continue to spar throughout the film, and that's that's a big part of it is sort of the tension between the two and the two, um, sort of their takes on, on acting and career and prestige and all that, which we'll talk more about. Okay, so Riggin discovers that his daughter's been smoking pot, and uh, when he confronts her, she chastises him, telling him that he's irrelevant and that this play is only for his own vanity. Then during the final preview, Riggin accidentally locks himself out of the theater and has to walk through Times Square in his underwear. Uh, later, his daughter Sam shows him that this has gone viral, and she says to him, believe it or not, this is power. Riggin goes to a bar to confront theater critic Tabitha Dickinson, who promises to kill his play by writing a bad review. She's not happy that he's a Hollywood film star who's come into her territory of Broadway and has sort of taken over things. She's going to destroy the uh, reputation of the play. Riggin uh, then is very distraught. He drinks a bottle of whiskey and passes out in the gutter. The next morning, while walking back to the theater, Riggin sort of has a, what you might call a vision of becoming Birdman again. He rises into the air, flies through the city, lots of uh, action and special effects. It's Again, it's left ambiguous. Does he actually fly through the air? Does he take a taxi back to the theater? Uh, but one way or another, he makes it back. So during the intermission of the opening night, uh, the audience members can be heard saying that the things are going really well. His acting is good. Then up in the uh, his dressing room, he confesses to his ex-wife, Sylvia, about a previous suicide attempt and that he hears this voice in his head. After she leaves the dressing room, Reagan is seen loading a real handgun uh, for use in this final scene of the play. Previously, he's shown using a, a fake plastic gun, which Mike tells him to get a new one because he doesn't feel threatened by the, the fake one. So Reagan, uh, upon entering the final scene of the play, he shoots himself in the head, which the audience thinks is part of the play, and he receives a standing ovation. Cut to Riggin waking up in the hospital, having only shot his nose off of his face, which has been cosmetically and I would say comically reconstructed. <laughs> Tabitha has written a glowing review of the play, saying that uh, his suicide attempt and the play itself are what the American theater have been desperately needing. Riggin goes into the bathroom to remove his facial bandages, sees <laughs> what, what he's done to himself, and uh, as he walks out of the bathroom... He says goodbye to the embodiment of this Birdman figure who's sitting on the toilet in the bathroom. Outside in his room, he notices some birds outside, so he opens the window, steps out onto the ledge. Then his daughter Sam enters the room, unable to find him. She goes to the window in a panic, then slowly looks up to the sky, smiling and laughing at what she might be seeing. 
great. Yeah, so it's just your basic boy just decides he's going to put on <laughs> put on a play. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sort of like, you know, the the, the you know the uh, uh well, anyway. <laughs> so, so, yeah, a a hard movie to describe. You did a great job of it. Um and um uh yeah, before I say anything more, TJ Daw, I want to hear your thoughts on Birdman as a movie, your reaction to it. And just my opinion of it, I adored it. I too hadn't seen it since it first came out. I remember loving it and similarly hadn't remember it in any great detail. So it was a joy to watch this again and to watch it a second time, to watch it with close attention and to look at it specifically with the lens of the Enneagram. And what popped for me is how much it oozes with foreness. There's so many themes in it of what is art? What is real art? Who is a real artist? About wanting to be perceived as a real artist, wanting to prove to yourself that you're a real artist and putting it all on the line for the sake of that. That's the characters in it. And then there's an angle that we'll get to, which is the artfulness of the director himself, which is Alejandro, and I'm, if I'm pronouncing his last name right, Inyaritu, who just, he doesn't do a cameo in the film. I don't know that he's ever appeared on screen in any of his movies, but his presence is there palpably in every second of this film, very much like he is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, showboating about what a brilliant artist he is. And quite honestly, I couldn't be happier that he's done so. I think it's a supreme cinematic achievement. Yeah. For me, likewise, love this movie. Um, really enjoyed it when I saw it. Was blown away upon rewatching. And I'll say for me, in addition to all the things that have already been said, uh, for me, it touches a, a special place because one of the central themes is one of my literary heroes, uh, Raymond Carver, uh, in particularly the short story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Uh, as we've said many times on the show, I go back a bit further than the two of you do. So I remember uh, when Carver was writing in real time, I was reading his work while he was still alive, following his career, and have, you know, his more well-known books uh, in first printing, first edition, because as soon as they came out, I ran to the bookstore to get them. Right? So, um, and in particular, this film starts with what you guys pointed out to me was on his, is now on his gravestone, a late fragment. And uh, it's just a very simple, it appears as a poem in his final book of poetry, A New Path to the Waterfall. Always one of my favorite titles. I mean, I think Carver just had this brilliance with title. I can just sit there and roll these titles around in my mouth over and over again, right? What we talk about when we talk about love, you know, a new path to the waterfall, all these things are wonderful. But I'm going to read this uh, late fragment, if you'll bear with me, uh, because it opens the movie. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? to call myself beloved and to feel myself beloved on the earth. And that, in addition to being a beautiful sentiment, it is kind of the theme of this movie, which I guess is why they used it to, you know, to, to start off. It was fascinating to me that they chose Raymond Carver as the subject of, you know, how making a play out of a Raymond Carver story was seen as kind of the height of artistic aspiration in a sense, which is what uh, Riggan Thompson was trying to accomplish. Because he is such a uh, gifted and artistic writer. So 
I'm going to end my diatribe about Raymond Carver here. But listener, if you have not read Raymond Carver yet, please go out and um, read Raymond Carver. What you talk about when we talk about love is a great, great story. His collection, Where I'm Calling From, is highly recommended. Okay. So with the movie, loved it. Found it, I'll say, a little bit exhausting because of the style right? The immediacy of it and this sort of appearance of there being one take. You almost feel like you don't get a moment's rest, right? So it's a highly charged emotional two hours of this movie where you don't get a break, uh, but can't recommend the movie highly enough. So fourness, go ahead. TJ Daw is our resident four. Say a little bit more about why you see fourness in this movie. Well, I believe Raymond Carver was a four. I, too, yes. am a tremendous fan. Absolutely. I've read his body of work multiple times. His stories, his poems, they just hit me in the heart. And the thing that he's best known for, again, this is for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know him, a tremendous subtlety and a pervasive sadness. There's no tricks in his work. And he even wrote that in a short essay about his writing yes. technique. He believed no tricks whatsoever. There's no fireworks. There's no fancy language. It's just the unswerving craft of someone in the relentless pursuit of truth. He filled his short stories with observations of minutia of human interaction. His characters were always regular people from the working class that he came from in the Pacific Northwest. And he, quite often small towns, people who worked in mills and various pretty humble settings like that. And he could see beauty where beauty isn't conventionally seen. And... There's no instance in his life or career where he's said to have sold out. So he's very easy to see as the embodiment of a pure artist, which doesn't necessarily make him a four, but I, it kind of fits with those other things in my sense of his fourness, as well as somebody that any four, including this four, could look to, especially when I was discovering him in my 20s, of just like that. That's what a person should be. That's something to aspire to. And can, can I just add something here, TJ, on that point? Because I completely agree with you. Uh, Carver strikes me as a four. Um, and there's that certain, you know, melancholy uh, that pervades his work um, and certainly the artistic commitment. But it's not precious. It's not, you know, melodramatic, anything like that, right? Uh, for me, when, you know, not being a four, uh, there are times when I read type four writers and really struggle, right? Like I, I, I'm a big Patti Smith fan, right? And so I wanted to read one of her books and it just struck me as so fourish, right? I mean, it was like, okay, I get it, right? Um, you know, a few years ago, I was in Alexandria, Egypt, and I said, you know what? I'm going to reread the Alexandria Quartet, right? Lawrence Durrell's uh, four novel set. And I just couldn't get through it as I'm older, I loved it when I was young, but now it was just like, all right, I get it. It just felt like a four manual. Carver doesn't, right? Uh, in the same way Hemingway can feel almost like an eight manual at times, you know, in some of his more, in some of his lesser writing, okay? But most of his writing, he gets over that. So uh, thoughts on that, TJ? Uh, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, one thing that comes to mind too is that the other major film that's made of, of Raymond Carver's short stories is Shortcuts by Robert Alton. Yeah a movie I adore, but doesn't have that same flavor. I think it has much more of an Altman flavor in that it's this kind of cascading, effervescing ensemble movie. And it takes place in Southern California rather than the Pacific right. Northwest. And there is sadness in it. There's even tragedy. 
But that's not the overwhelming mood of that movie, the way it is in this movie and the way it is in his short stories. Carver suffered a lot. He was an alcoholic and he got sober. And he's got a poem where he recreates the dialogue between himself and his daughter when he's confronting her about her drinking, which I found an interesting mirror in the conversation between Riggins' character when he confronts his daughter, who's gone through rehab as well in this. Uh, he died of a brain tumor. I believe he was in his early 50s. And he wrote a poem about that near the end of his life called Gravy, which, again, I would highly mm -hmm. recommend. I mm -hmm. have it quoted in front of me, but I don't dare read it for fear of bursting into tears in the middle. It's one of the most beautiful things I have ever read. But he really does stand out as somebody, as a four who did his work yeah. and was able to distill his sensitivity and create something that transcended himself. His work had shades of autobiography in it, but it wasn't directly autobiographical. Something he'd said in, in a nonfiction essay about writing is that he actually doesn't have a very good memory. He couldn't remember the details of his life, where he lived, where he worked, what happened when, that kind of thing. So his stories were inventions, although they drew liberally from his own life and his own experiences and his own thoughts. But they almost seemed to come from some mystical place, almost like he was just a, a servant to some higher artistic source, not in a pretentious way, like Force can really get pretentious about that, but more in just, I'm a humble craftsman, very much like my father who worked in a mill. And I'm here to carve, quite literally, these impressions that I have into literature and release them into the world. And his, his reputation, as well as the quality of his work, has not diminished in the decades since his death. Agreed. So with the, the movie, okay, so we could talk about Raymond Carver all day. I certainly know I could. And, uh, uh, and maybe we'll do another episode sometime, you know, uh, about different writers. But the movie itself is really all about these fours issues. Now, when I think of fours, I always think of this preferred strategy of striving to feel unique. Okay, it's what is different about me? Why do I feel different? How do I express that difference? How do I reconnect with that thing that is uniquely me? Um, the, the core quality that the four is wrestling with uh, that feels stunted in them is their individuality, right? So the four is always wrestling with this sense that I've lost contact with who I am as a individual and am lost in my identifications with roles, with my relationships with other people. I don't know where I start and other people stop, etc. So I'm always trying to push up against those boundaries. I'm always trying to explore that. And that is certainly something that Regan Thompson is going through here, right? Um, so who, who wants to say more about that? Specifically, if we look at Regan Thompson's, is, I'm sorry, is it Thomas or Thompson? I, I'm Thompson, no P. Thompson, okay. Um, he's Birdman. He was Birdman, the superhero. And now he's trying to show that he is an artist. Okay. So somebody tie that fact and that struggle to the points I was just talking about, about individuality. Well, I'm, I'm curious to see what both of you think about this. I mean, I totally agree that the film has, it's very heavily these four-ish themes. Personally, I kind of saw the film as a tension between three and four yeah. and seeing yeah. Riggin as a three and Mike as a four and the constant tension between those two throughout the film. But um, do, do you agree with that or do you see Riggin as a four? So I kept going back on the same exact point, right? And is, is Riggin's path more the three path around value 
Okay. Whereas Mike, played by Edward Norton, is a more clear four character. Okay. Um, I think for me it was about fifty-one forty-nine four to three in the Regan character. So I, I would I, I think that's a great observation. And I went back and forth as I was rewatching the movie this time. There's a whole lot of three stuff going on here, but also a whole lot of four stuff going on. So good point. Uh, TJ Dahl, what's your view on that? This makes a lot of sense. Three hadn't occurred to me watching it, um, but I had watched it thinking if he's a four, it's definitely not a perfect portrait of a four. Yes. Yes. The central to his his arc in this movie is wanting to earn the respect and esteem of other people for him as an artist. I'm not just a movie star who did action movies 30 years ago. I'm a real artist with depth and with something to say. Now, the thing that diminishes the case for that character being a four is the fact that, well, then what have you been doing up until now? You know, a four wouldn't wait till he's 60 to make yes. his, his grand effort to prove to the world and to himself that he's a legitimate artist. Yes, completely agree. And for me, the, the, the real heart of this movie was about authenticity versus commerce, about real experience versus manufactured experience. And even this movie was an effort to, you know, achieve something real, to portray something real. And yet there were uh, a few really interesting product placements right in the middle of the movie, right? Like, I don't know if you guys noticed the perfectly placed bottle of Stella Artois mm -hmm. uh, during that one scene, <laughs> right? And and I just I just remember watching that thinking, man, what a great commercial for Stella. And I'm sure that somebody got a paycheck from, you know, from the, the brewery on that. It is a uh, beautiful but, green bottle, though. It is. And the label is placed perfectly so that it could be viewed by the camera, right? And so for me, I'm wondering, okay, did he do that on purpose? you know, to show that he understands, you know, uh, commerce and its role in the arts? Uh, or was he just working in, you know, an extra paycheck here to get some additional funding for the movie? So um, thoughts on commerce versus authenticity here? I wrote down art versus entertainment. Mm. Reagan and Mike have several conversations, one particularly when they're walking down the street going to the bar. Uh, Reagan says he's got a lot writing on this play. People know who I am. And yes. Mike says, they don't know who you are. They know the guy from the bird suit who goes on Letterman <laughs> and tells slightly vomitous stories. And uh, Riggin says, well, I'm sorry if I'm popular. And, and Mike says, popularity is the slutty little cousin of prestige. <laughs> and so I, I think that little conversation encapsulates the whole film and, and what Riggin is wrestling with and what this Birdman voice that's speaking to him is trying to tell him you know, you don't need to do this Broadway crap. Go jump into the bird suit and we'll make a billion dollars and everyone will love you again. And he's very tempted by that. You know, the scene when he he gets drunk, passes out in the gutter. And then the next morning as he's walking home, you know, he lets his fantasy slip back into, you know, he enters basically a scene from the movie. There's a giant metal bird and explosions and fighting. And mm -hmm. and so he he's tempted by that. But ultimately, he ends up putting on an incredible uh, play yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. TJ Daw? Yeah. Another line that I just loved is when he's arguing with his inner critic while he's trashing his room. He says, what are you trying to prove that you're an artist? You're not. We grossed billions. And then he responds to himself and billions of flies eat shit every day. Does that make it good? And in so many ways, I wonder if this movie is the director's kind of throwing down the gauntlet at his own profession. This movie came out in 2014. So that is chalk in the middle 
of the surge of superhero movies, particularly the Marvel, a lot of the Marvel movies that we've been talking about earlier in this season. And he famously hasn't participated in any, in the creation of any of them. In fact, those movies are rarely directed by artists who have their own distinct voice and body of work. Some directors like Edgar Wright have been fired from movies like that. He was the original director for Ant-Man, for instance. Hmm. Marvel movies, franchise movies in general, are made by work-for-hire directors who don't get final cut and are willing to submit to the authority of a huge studio that exerts total control and has final cut. You know this going in. You will be very well paid. Your movie will be seen by more people than any of the movies that you've made otherwise. And we own it. And we can use it to sell Pepsi and Doritos and whatever we want. And you are not allowed to say anything bad about that. And there's a lot of conversation in film circles, whether it's from directors or from movie lovers, about the state of things right now. And that's usually the conversation that happens. Oh, it's all franchise movies. It's all tent poles. It's not actual art. Sure, it's art. Entertainment can be art. And of course, that's happening in the hearts and minds of actors themselves who want to be seen by billions of people who want to be, who want to be famous, who want to be rich, who want to be successful, and who want to do something that has genuine value who want to be taken seriously, who want to win Oscars, who want to be thought of as excellent actors, and who don't want the movies to be nothing but popcorn movies. So for me, um, this um, demonstrates that humans are complex, okay? That this is not a clear four or three character, yet a human wrestling with the complexity of the human experience, right? So in... You know, in, in my training, we talk about the core qualities, okay? And we talk about the core qualities being um, the nine aspects of each one of us. Where the Enneagram types are describing nine different people, the core qualities describe nine elements of each of us that we're all wrestling with in one way or another. So, uh, you know, for me, it's kind of like a three working out his point four issues, in this while he's also working out his point three issues but he definitely doesn't have that affect that we typically associate with four okay now michael keaton i believe is probably a seven in real life okay if we if we track his career i'd bet 90 percent of his characters have been sevens okay and uh, i even said this to you guys when we you know before re-watching this oh so we'll be talking about sevens again uh but it's not a seven character but also it's to the point that's already been made, it's not a pitch-perfect tonal character, you know, a tonal portrayal of a four. I think some of the others' uh, portrayals are much more pitch-perfect, right, or at least pitch-closer, I guess. Uh, we'll talk about those in a moment. But yeah, I, so I like that idea that this is perhaps a three, wrestling with the things that we usually associate with point four on the Enneagram. And it's interesting that as we're recording this, the number one movie at the box office right now is Top Gun Maverick, which <laughs> seems to be the rare instance of a three who's completely embraced being a movie star. Mm -hmm. It's been a long time since Tom Cruise has been in a movie where his performance got an Oscar nomination or where there was even the possibility that the movie, much less his performance, would get one. He seems to have completely just embraced, I make popcorn movies, I make them very well, I do a lot of my own stunts, my movies do incredibly well, and they do incredibly well because of how good I am. And he's also very good at talking to the press. Seems to love being a movie star. Yeah. And that might be the shining exception of like the three, the popular three who's at the top of their craft, who doesn't seem to wrestle with that of like, am I simply just this perfect movie star? Yeah. 
it, might there not be depth to me as well? Wouldn't it be nice if people could see that aspect of me? People should watch Magnolia. It's one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen. It was also 25 years ago. Right? Yeah, not, not just by Tom Cruise, by any actor. It's, it's genuinely incredible. Which is fascinating because it shows that Tom Cruise has it in him, right? And to TJ's point, he said, you know, it's almost like with Magnolia or Born on the Fourth of July or one or two other roles. He said, I could do this. I could be this guy. I can act as good as anybody else out there. But to TJ Dahl's point, but what I'm really good at and I can do better than anybody else is be a movie star. Right. I mean, because how many movie stars do we have today? Right. I mean, there's just not that many of them. And I, I, I read an essay recently where somebody was saying that it seems that Tom Cruise's real goal at this point, real aspiration is to be the world's best leading man stunt person. Right. Uh, you know how each of his movies just has crazier and crazier stunts involved. Um, but yeah, great, great observations there. Um, one more point on Michael Keaton. Again, I think plays a seven better than anybody else, probably because he is a seven. Uh, you know, Beetlejuice, uh, I mean, you just go on and on. One of my favorites was Night Shift, one of his early movies with uh, Henry Winkler and Shelley Long way back in the day. Uh, even uh, in the um, the Jackie Brown movies, uh, they, they were the Elmore Leonard book-based movies of Out of Sight and Jackie Brown, he plays a seven-ish FBI agent or ATF agent. I can't remember at this point. But what a brave role on Michael Keaton's part. Not only because he's parading around in his underwear half the time, but to be such a, uh, to, to be in a role that is so easily mocking his career, right? Of having been Batman, because we all forget that it was Keaton who started this stuff in 1989 with Batman, you know, and there's a nice line that shows his jealousy of Robert Downey Jr., you know, being a billionaire and all those sort of things. But opening himself up for potential ridicule and mockery, but doing it in a way that created nothing but sympathy, I thought was pretty remarkable. Any, any, any thoughts on that? One of the scenes that really seemed very three-ish to me was when he told the story of being on the airplane uh, George Clooney was sitting two seats in front of him. The airplane had a bunch of turbulence, and he's just sitting there. Everyone else is crying and praying on the plane. He's staring at Clooney, saying, oh, boy, when my daughter reads the paper the next morning, it's going to be Clooney's face they sees, not mine. And his ex-wife just sort of stares at him in disbelief that he's talking about this. But George Clooney played Batman after Keaton did. So there's a bunch of references yes, like that throughout yes, the yes. film. That he's, he's more or less playing himself. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know how much Michael Keaton actually wrestles with things the way that Riggan Thompson does. But I'm quite sure Keaton was able to access something for this role. It's only a half degree removed from his career. Yes. So I'm sure he, yes. he felt that. Right, right. And it's easy to forget that he had largely been forgotten by this point. He hadn't played a lead role in a movie in, I think, six or eight years by this point. And I can't even remember the last time he played a lead in a movie that was popular. Maybe Batman Returns in 1992. So this was a career revitalization. This was a comeback from somebody who'd lapsed into obscurity, which was so utterly successful, partially because it was so unexpected, because of all the things we've been talking about, you know, all the layers between fiction and real life that it absolutely revised his career. He was considered a shoo-in for the Oscar. He didn't get it. But then he went on to have the lead in Spotlight, which won Best Picture. And then he's been playing nothing but lead roles ever since. This absolutely was that 
story, that comeback story that Hollywood just loves, that the public just loves, of like, here's this person who never was taken that seriously as an actor. He started as a comedian and he was playing lead roles in comedies. And even though they were hits, even though he was amazing, that's not what gets the Oscar, much less the nomination. He was considered just a popular actor. And with this movie, suddenly he's one of the great actors again and has been doing incredible work ever since. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. Let's talk about a couple of other characters. Uh, certainly, we have to talk about Edward Norton's character of, of Mike. Uh, but before that, I want to talk about Emma Stone. I have to admit that um, I, I know who Emma Stone is, and I've seen a couple of her movies, but I always think of her as the um, one of the leads in the uh, the zombie movie with Woody Harrelson. And uh, uh, what was that one called? Uh, Zombieland. Zombieland, yeah, of course. How could I forget? So uh, great in that. Uh, before I speculate here... Um, Thoughts on the Emma Stone character, Sam, uh, her Enneagram type. Any thoughts? Eight is my guess. She's tough. From the very first time we meet her, the moment we meet her, she's Skyping in from buying flowers and she yells at someone to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) He says, just something that smells nice. And her response is, it all smells like fucking kimchi. I fucking hate this job. Hangs up. And for those of you who may not know what kimchi is, uh, it has a real potent smell to it, right? So, and, and so it was not only a harsh statement, but it was also kind of a racial slur, right? At the, you know, in that scene. But go ahead. All right. She argues a number of points in the movie, but she's never the provocateur. It's like when someone pushes her, she'll hit back and hard. And there's a scene when she tells off her father brutally. It's an extended yes. diatribe, which TJ you summarized in the overall movie summary. And at the end of it, she realizes, I probably went a little too far. We see her soften. It's a nice, it's a long monologue yeah. and a close-up. And we see the transformation in her face of like, wow, I just beat the shit out of my dad. That might not have been necessary. Right. I think it's a pretty good depiction of a, a female eight, right? And I say female because um, the stereotype of the eight is sort of male. And I think often female eights are overlooked and unrecognized. Again, I don't um, know that many of her roles, but in Zombieland, she had the same sort of tough, in-control leadership sort of style that was also a sort of eightish character. Um, I don't know if she's an eight in real life, but, you know, here's a couple of good eight portrayals. Uh, in addition to the point you mentioned already, TJ, there was the um, her interaction with Ed Norton's character, 
right, which was very gutsy and bold for a woman who was so much younger than the man, and she sort of takes control of that relationship and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, there's this almost protective role that she takes of her father once she gets all of her anger and hostility and resentments off of her chest in that scene that you started talking about. And there's also the scene where she laughs about spitting on the guy's head from uh, <laughs> from the roof of the theater. So, so um, for, for me, it was a, a, um, a, a pretty good eight portrayal. And I think the reason that I could walk away from that movie feeling uplifted in the way that I did is because of the look on her face at the end of it and just the marvel in her eyes. I mean, it's not eight-ish, you know, necessarily. It's just human. But that that look on her face at the end. I didn't think it was possible for Emma Stone's eyes to get any bigger, but they about doubled in size in that last shot. It reminded me of some sort of filter or something. I asked myself, did they do some weird special effect things with her eyes? I don't think so. But I completely agree. I've never seen eyes shine like that. Yeah. In the way they and did. Uh, one thing I noticed today, I've, I don't know how many times I've seen the movie, but just um, she's got this tattoo on her shoulder of a feather that turns into birds that are flying away. Uh, and I'm quite sure that this is a direct reference to that final shot of the film, oh, uh, which is a nice little tie in. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, good. So, yeah, I, I thought um, that that was, you know, she was a, a well, I, I, not a minor character for sure, but, you know, not one of the, the leads necessarily, but really, really well done character. And I think a good female representation of an eight in real life rather than the stereotype of the eight. Okay. Yeah. You know, now that you're saying that the scene in the dressing room when she takes Mike down to get fitted for his pants yes. and he has to get undressed and he's like, are you sure you want to stay? And she says, it's the theater, honey. Don't be so self-conscious because <laughs> yeah, he said right. that to her earlier. So right. he gets naked and she's just standing there. And it yes. felt very much like a battle of the wills, like who's yes. going to who's going to crack first. And that seems very an eight-ish thing. You know, you think you're going to shock me? Well, try again. Yes. Yes. Also, to build on what you said about that scene when she gets amused by spitting on the guy's head. She goes up to that roof twice. You know, we follow Edward Norton up there, and she's already there sitting on the ledge, having a yes. cigarette, looking over. And at one point, some yahoo on the street bellows up at her to jump, <laughs> and she bellows right back at him. And then at one point, she just says, I fucking love this city. Yes. And that got me thinking, like, for one thing, that's very eight-ish to love yes. that kind of intense yes. engagement. But it also got me thinking that, and this is an obvious statement. I just never thought of it before or heard anybody else express it. New York City is an eight. Yes. Certainly the way it's presented in the movies, and I would say in real life as well. Of just the things it's famous for is that energy, that power, that realness. And then something that really impressed me and amused me when I was there last time, which was in the winter of 2018. I was doing one of my shows at a small theater off Broadway, and I had a number of nights off, and I was going to see Broadway shows, which got me reflecting on just how funny it is that in this city that is this mecca of toughness, of realness, in the heart of Manhattan, which is the heart of New York, in midtown Manhattan is the theater district. And that, what is that all about? That's about hundreds of people cramming into a building together so they can watch stories and feel feelings. So that confluence between the toughness and the sensitivity that is type eight, I just thought like, yep, yeah. here we are, no coincidence that she loves this fucking city. Yeah. And, and I have to show, just to reinforce that point, I'm going to give the detail of her exchange with that guy, right? Because 
the guy yells to her, jump, right? And she yells back down, eat me, right? And then his response was, well, then jump on my face. And she laughs, right? Her reaction is to laugh. And that, now that's crude, right? And so, you know, we usually don't talk about these things in a family uh, uh, show like this, but it portrays that eatness, not to be offended, but to find it funny, okay? Uh, from from a safe sort of situation, so you can't shock me, you can't hurt me is is something that came through there. So, all right, and great. you matched me, we yes. matched each yes. other, and that you, was fun. Yes, you're a formidable opponent, and that's what I'm looking for. Yes. I salute you. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Okay, um, so um, Edward Norton's Mike. Uh, let's talk about him. One of his better performances in a career of really good performances. Uh, you know, Edward Norton is one of the great actors. Uh, I find him a little, um, I never rush out because of an Edward Norton performance, but I always find myself really admiring and respecting his work. And again, I was blown away by this. Uh, thoughts on Edward Norton's character and performance? Supposedly, it's somewhat of a cartoonish rendition of Edward Norton himself, yeah. <laughs> because he's known as being incredibly talented and incredibly prickly and does not suffer fools, particularly in terms of his art and his craft. So the character of Mike Shiner is brash and he's arrogant and his life is a temple that he has built to his art. And unlike the actual Ed Norton, this character seems to exclusively be a New York theater actor and is incredibly highly regarded. So just his last minute involvement in the play spikes ticket sales. There's a number of details in it. One of them is that he's partners with Naomi Watts' character, and then he gets an erection backstage when they're in bed and they're supposed to go on, and it comes out that this is the first erection he's had in six months. There's a number of references to the fact that to him, real life and authenticity happens when he is in his art not when he's offstage. The world offstage is a lesser version of the world and he is a lesser version of himself. But he's only really himself when he's performing. And he has this self-confidence that isn't necessarily characteristic of a four because stereotypically and honestly, fours are often kind of wilting and self-conscious and withdrawn. The place where that is not seen is in fours kind of belief in their own artistic greatness. Not every four would come out and say it, but this particular four, this character, has had a lot of success in the world. He is a big player in the New York theater scene, so he just has the moxie to wear this on his sleeve. So at some point, you know, he has a conversation with Tabitha, who's the main reviewer for the New York Times, and she says, aren't you worried I'll give you a bad review? And he says, I'm sure you will if I ever give you a bad performance. Mm -hmm. He just has not one speck of self-doubt that he is an artist, and he is able to confront this movie star whose show he is in, who is his boss and who could fire him at any point and go toe to toe with him and even dress him down about what real art is and what this show needs to have. Do you think that speaks to him being a transmitting for? Oh yeah. Yeah. As well as, and this comes in with Tabitha as well, that real cross between one and four. So He's pretty one-ish, and I think fours can be very one-ish on the topic of what is art and who's an artist. And if there's any time that you will hear a four, including this four who's talking right now, go on a diatribe with no doubt, with no gray area, 
It's that that person's a phony. That person's not an artist. That person is creating shitty art and ruining it for all of us. And I loathe them. And I would happily see them die. I would happily watch them die slowly. Yes. Listen to Steve Jobs talk about Bill Gates back in the day, right? Um, the same sort of thing, that same sort of aggressive animosity of you're nothing, you're uninteresting, your stuff is garbage, you know, all the, all this sort of thing. You're destroying computers. So I agree with you. Yes, I transmitting four for me. I also agree, TJ, that um, I think his um, impotence, probably speaks to some insecurities in other areas of his life, right? Uh, that, that was referred to in the movie. I think that to your point, he's someone who probably outside of the theater, outside of his natural habitat, probably was racked with insecurity and uh, hesitancy and all these things that we often associate with fours. But in his space, in the world that he thought was the real world, which was being up there on stage, all that went away, right? And, and so this is the four-ish theme, right, of authenticity. Okay, I wish I had a nickel every time I heard a four talk about authenticity because it's over and over again. And this was Mike's whole um, thing about the play, right? Even the fact he, he freaked out and destroyed the uh, preview because they switched his gin to water, right? And, you know, again, it's not real if I'm not drinking real gin. He wanted to actually have sex on the stage because that would be more real and authentic. Um, so, yeah, really good for me for performance. And one extra little bit that just popped for me is when he and Sam, the Emma Stone character, are playing Truth or Dare. And she said, you know, if you weren't afraid, what would you want to do to me? <laughs> and he said, I'd pull your eyes out of your head and put them in my own skull and look around so I could see the street the way I used to when I was your age. Which is just such a, for one thing, unexpected thing to say. Yes. In what's clearly a sexual flirtation. And it initially sounds disgusting and yeah. threatening, but is revealed to be an admission of his own sensitivity and his desire for the sensitivity that he had when he was younger, when he had more fresher impressions and more idealism and more hope. Good stuff. Anything else about Mike before we... Uh, two other smaller characters I want to talk about, you know, uh, but uh, for me, the critic Tabitha and Zach Galifianakis. Uh, but uh, any other thoughts on Norton's performance here? I think it's one of the best four-ish performances you're ever going to see. You know, you can just pick any random quote from him anywhere in the movie, and it's about the four-ish thing any four has ever said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would agree. Uh, all right. Uh, for, for your next four video, TJ, you can... Uh, uh, I've actually used a couple scenes from him right, in my oh, four okay. video. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. Um, all right. So, um, uh, Zal Galifianakis, I don't know that I have a strong read on his type, but what a nice piece of anti-typecasting here, right? Because I think by this point, Zach Galifianakis had already done The Hangover and established his persona. And this was really, really different. Uh, I don't know. What did you guys take away from that performance? I got kind of a six-ish vibe. Uh, he's Riggins' fixer. He's very loyal. He's, he's basically stressed through the whole movie, kind of neurotic. Uh, at one point he says, I'm the one holding this whole thing together. Uh, I don't know that it's super strong, but that was right. about the, that was the strongest vibe I got from it. Yeah. Same here. I got, I got a real six-ish sense of his energy. His persona. He was pretty high strung. He was pretty nervous. He knew that this whole thing was teetering on the verge of collapse, 
then again, it might take off and become the biggest thing anybody's ever seen. And there's all of these problems and he's there kind of managing all the problems as they unfold. And there's a scene when, when Reagan gets locked out and has to go around Times Square in his underwear and then comes through through the audience. And then he comes on stage and then the camera shows that Jake, the character, is backstage watching. And then his phone rings and he pulls it out and does this kind of funny flip and flumble and then drops it and then picks it up. And suddenly he's talking to the lawyer of the actor who was injured. And, you know, he, he's off just solving more problems, even as this problem, which looked like our lead isn't even there. But now he's coming through the audience in his underwear without his prop. And oh, but that's OK. But now ooh, another problem. And, and you're right, very different from the crazy guy that he got famous playing in The Hangover. Yeah. I also found out in some of the trivia that with the complexity of the long shots, he was the actor who made the fewest mistakes. Because if there's a slight error in blocking, in accidentally glancing at the camera, in lines, cut, okay, reset, we gotta start again. He was the one that they could count on to just not make mistakes, and he had plenty to do. Yeah, Galifianakis is an interesting guy. I mean, not only is he a gifted comedian, uh, and that's you know certainly what I know him from. I, I always think of The Hangover, and if I mean talk about a breakout performance in The Hangover because I I didn't know who he was prior to that, but he was the most interesting character by far in that movie. I felt, um, and uh, also Between Two Ferns, I think is just a work of genius uh, and intelligent creativity. But he also lives in a cabin in the kind of middle of nowhere where he homeschools his kids or something. You know, he's a he's an interesting character that way. So uh, big fan of Galifianakis. Now, the art critic, theater critic, uh, Tabitha, any argument about her being a one? If she's not a one, I'd say she's a four. She's in ah, that place where one meets four because yeah, she is yeah. all about she's devoted her life and her career to being the gatekeeper, the arbiter of what is art and what is not. And the reason that she's determined to kill this play before she's even seen it and is not afraid to say it is that you are not an actor. You're a celebrity. Yes. And you're taking up this stage that otherwise could be used for real art. Yes. So there's a real one-ish vibe to her. And, yeah. Uh, but also that, that four-ish being a one vibe. Yeah, and uh, she's described as looking like she licked a homeless guy's ass and has a stick up her butt, which can be, you know, the unhealthy one. We've got sticks up our butts, so that's the point for that. <laughs> yes, one of the more colorful lines of the movie, uh, which... <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so I for me, and, and I hear what you're saying, TJ, and again, this tells us, um, you know, the Enneagram types are complex, right? And it's this movement amongst points. And completely agree with you that fours have this one-ish element of them and ones have this four-ish element of them. I mean, look what our young friend TJ here does uh, with his time. He creates videos, uh, you know, about the Enneagram types, right? So uh, there's certainly an artistic uh, mindset here, uh, which, you know, again, we would think, oh, he's an artist, he does these videos, he must be a four. Well, no, uh, you know, humans are complex. So um, for me, her affect just felt more one-ish than four-ish, right? So I see what you're saying about this intersection of, you know, uh, critique and um, art. Um, uh, for me, it felt more one-ish. And the fact that she was planning to trash his play without having seen it, to me is a very sort of one-ish thing of living by certain rules 
rather, you know, we talk about how one sort of lose contact with objectivity and fill it with rules instead of actual objective experience. And that seemed to be what she was doing there as well. So I, I thought it, it felt sort of one-ish for me. Yeah. Then also at the end, after she saw the play and recognized it for its greatness, she writes a glowing review basically saying something about how he's reformed the American theater. It's like, this is something that is needed. It needs to change. So something about the reformation and recognizing one wants to be right, lowercase r, but there's also something about recognizing what is right, capital R. And she recognized what was right about this play and accepted it. There was also, I felt, I completely agree. And uh, there was also, I felt sort of an unsentimentality to her. And the fact that she, you know, when Riggin shoots himself at the end of the play and everybody else, first of all, they're standing up and applauding, she walks out. Uh, She's the only character leaving. So there's almost like this, I've got a job to do, right? My job is done, done watching this. I'm not sitting here reveling in the experience like everybody else. I'm off to the next task uh, at hand. So uh, again, felt one-ish with a four-ish sort of uh, flavor. Okay. Any other characters we have not talked about that are worth noting? Uh, There's Leslie and Sylvia and Laura, sort of the female, not exactly side characters, but they're not as prominent. I didn't get as a heavy vibe from them. The ex-wife Sylvia could had kind of a nine-ish feel to me a little bit. Laura, possibly a four, Leslie, maybe a three, but I don't know that there's quite enough there to get a strong bead on it. One of the themes that came up, particularly in the scene between Leslie and Laura backstage, is the orientation towards love. And that is a big theme in this movie that isn't necessarily hand-in-hand with type four, because you would think that type fours, and stereotypically they often are, disdainful of love, of romance novels, of Valentine's Day, of Hallmark cards, of all of the regular trappings of love. Of If you ask a four what they want, they probably won't say, I want people to love me. But deep down, that's what so much that fours do is oriented towards. And that's the epigraph. That's the quote from Raymond Carver that starts the whole movie. That's kind of that's the opening note of the whole film is wanting to be loved, to be to feel beloved upon this earth. So the conversation between Leslie and Laura talks about things like Leslie, the Naomi Watts character, said, all my life I've always wanted to be a Broadway actress. And now I'm here but I'm not a Broadway actress. I'm still just a little kid and I keep waiting for someone to tell me I've made it. And then Laura says, you've made it. And then Regan comes in and he tells her that she's beautiful and talented and I'm lucky to have you. And she says, that was kind of sweet. And then Laura gets sad and says, two years and he's never said anything like that to me. You know, they're together. One of the plot points is that it turns out she's not, but she very well might be pregnant with this child. And then they, you know, they kind of give that gift to each other. Leslie says to her, you're beautiful and you're talented and I'm lucky to have you. And they say, we're gross. Yeah, we are. And then they start kissing. So let's make out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it really is about this deep human longing, this vulnerability, this need to be loved and this, this hole right in the center of each of us that fours are all too aware of and can build our whole lives around in terms of deep down, I believe that I'm unlovable and I desperately want the right people, the elite people, the people with taste, surrogates, or perhaps the real version of the people who never loved me when I was growing up, to say to me, you're real. You're the real thing. You're beautiful. I'm lucky to have you. You're talented. You have value. Leave it to the eight to uh, 
suck all the uh, tenderness and emotion out of the moment and take it to a puerile place. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so thank <you>. <laughs> thanks, TJ. Yeah, it's great. I agree. And so what's interesting, you know, when you were talking there, TJ, it made me reflect upon Carver's use of the word beloved rather than loved, right? Which is this sort of elevation of the idea, right? It, it becomes sort of this next order of love. Uh, you know, when I think of the beloved, I always think of the, you know, the Sufi relationship to God, you know, the seeking after the beloved, this thing that I just, I, I just have to be reunited with, you know, that I, I just can't feel a sense of, of separation in any way, you know, and so uh, there's this, emer this merging that happens, which is part of what we're all seeking at some level. But also, I think a part of what the four is ultimately going after, even though it's not kind of, you know, the common thought is this, no, I, you know, I, I want to demonstrate my individuality so I can be reunited with something um, here. Um, anyway, uh, gr great, great observations there, guys. So, um, heck of a movie, this bird, man. I think uh, this Inuritu guy has a has a career ahead of him, uh, you know. Uh, it also, speaking of him, I think his prior movie to this was beautiful with... Um, Javier Bardem. Uh, thank you, Javier Bardem. Perhaps the most depressing uh, movie I've ever seen. Uh, a great movie, but boy, oh boy, did I, did I want to kill myself walking out of that movie. And uh, I know that... Uh, the director really wanted to make something a bit lighter and different from, you know, some of those tones that he had been making. So um, I recommend Beautiful uh, for anybody who has not seen it. Final thoughts on Birdman before we wrap up today, guys. Well, one of the things, we, you know, we touched on this at the beginning is just the virtuosity of these long, incredible, complicated shots. One of the things that really stood out to me is you could do something like this and it is simply a technical feat. And that would still be impressive. This is in service of a story that actually means something. Also, unlike many long shots, this movie doesn't take place in real time. A number of days pass. There's blatant magic realism elements that happen in it. This is a virtuoso at the top of his craft, putting all of his brilliance and expertise into this to make something that actually means something and a composer whose music I just adore, and which is briefly used in the movie, is Sergei Rachmaninoff. And I was reminded of him a number of times that I was watching this, because for some reason that I can't even explain, I've started listening to his Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini in the last year like a number of times. And the thing about Rachmaninoff is his music is incredibly technically complex. And as I'm listening to it, it's just a marvel that he existed, that any human being could devise that music, much less play it, much less that anyone else could play it. And yet he did, and it'll be really fast and really technical, and then it'll slow right the hell down. And then these passages that are simple and sweet and will absolutely break your heart, which this movie did in abundance many, many times. And then this movie also included, as we mentioned, scenes where there are special effects, where there are explosions, where there are soldiers, where there's monsters, where there's flight, which I thought was in some ways, Inuratu's way of saying, I could do a Marvel movie if I wanted to. I could do them as well, if not better than anybody else. And I choose not to, because I'm a real artist. And I'm going to use all of that brilliance to make this a story about love and value and art. And guess what? It won Best Picture. 
so one of our, and, and, and I'm always reluctant when somebody says something that good, I'm reluctant to, to follow up on it, uh, but, uh, but I'm going to. For me, the way the movie was structured as seemingly one long shot created a sense of immediacy, a sense of authenticity, a sense of being there with the people, uh, you know, that you just don't get from movies that are clearly episodic in nature, okay, or more episodic that way. And I was reading about this movie and looking at some of the interpretations, right? And everybody has different interpretations, particularly of the ending. And my reaction to it was, was that this is a movie that does not want your interpretation. This is a movie that wants you to feel it and experience it, right? To be in it, to, 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 to experience yourself in it in some way and to lose yourself in it. And for me, that's what great art does. It's also the gift of the four, right? Of stop, stop thinking about it, right? Stop, stop trying to figure it out. Just experience it. TJ and Gracia, it was your movie. First of all, thank you for uh, picking it and uh, giving us the opportunity to watch it again. But final thoughts before we finish. Uh, I don't think I could say anything better than all that. I mean, I, I love it more and more every time I see it. I'm uh, marveled by the uh, the technical achievement and then the, uh, the the heart that it brings forward as well. Yeah, as you said, that's that's if that's not a four, then I don't know what is. All right. So uh, next time, uh, so it's my turn to pick a movie, and I picked something very different again uh, from what you guys have picked. But my first movie that we're going to talk about is the Hugh Grant movie about a boy, uh, which is a movie that I just love. And there's a reason I picked this, because I think it portrays an Enneagram type, particularly an Enneagram subtype, better than anything I've ever seen reflecting that type slash subtype that goes against the stereotypes and shows how the stereotypes are created by somebody who has never experienced a real person of that subtype, in my view. Uh, so I'm not going to give away what that is and what my speculation is, but uh, if you're listening to this, you have a week until next time. You can watch About a Boy uh, prior and join the conversation. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Enneagram and a Movie podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram and a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.